are really going to kind of anchor in this, this place of acknowledging him as Lord of our lives and responding to him as Lord of our lives. And we just invite the Lord to, through his word and through his spirit, come in and do some work on our hearts. At any point in time that he makes something clear to you that he might be calling you towards or in, I just, I just would encourage you to respond to the Lord yourself and let him know that you will choose him, that you will trust him, that you will follow him. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Christ is my firm foundation, he's the rock on which I stand, when everything around me is shaken, I've never been more glad that I put my faith 
There's a gentleman walking down the street, walking on the sidewalk. He sees my Bible, he looks at me, and I didn't I didn't see him at first, and he says, Oh Dios. And I go, see, sí, Dios. And, and he goes, Dios and you power. And I go, see, sí, power. I just thought I'd share that in case anybody has any doubt. Our neighbors are working here also. And they notice what we do. He saw this and he commented and it struck my heart. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Roger. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is alive in you, Roger, by the power of his spirit. Amen. Amen. Hmm. Oh, Lord. We intercede for our community. Thank you for disciples like Roger growing in faith or positioned strategically in this community for your glory and your good purpose. Lord, may your name be recognized and exalted beyond formal gatherings throughout the week on Casino Road in South Everett. Amen. May our week be filled with just as many testimonies as that across the room of God's glory in our community. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, delighted to be back together again this morning. We'll be concluding our five-week series that we've been walking through. I want to thank uh, both Lauren and Danessa for sharing the last two Sundays' uh, values concerning sacred relationships and our neighborhood in our city. We're going to conclude that series today. Uh, and we're going to find ourselves uh, briefly covering a little bit of Matthew 13 and then digging into the text in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. So you can turn there if you want to prepare in advance. But why a five-week series on the core values of South Everett Foursquare? The things that we value are the things that we prioritize. Now, it's important to remember that some of the things that we value aren't the things we want to value, but they are the things that our heart is most tightly wrapped around in a season in the circumstance, which is why it's always good to return and ask the question, what is it that we value? It's tied right into the question that Chris asked us as we opened our time of praise this morning. Is every part of my life surrendered to Jesus? The reality, I think, on this side of heaven is that, well, clearly, no, it's not. It can't be fully because I'm a work in progress because I'm still working out my salvation with fear and trembling, and on this side of heaven, there's always work to do. So we ask ourselves the question, what areas of my life still yet need to be freshly surrendered to Jesus? And if your life is like my life, those things change all the time. And so it's good to do that Psalm 139 audit that King David did. Lord, search me and find anything in me that is ill-fitting and and impure, unrighteous. That was something that King David would do was to say, God, I know there's some stuff in me that ain't right. Help search it out. Shine the light on it so it can be lifted out and surrendered to you. That things that thrived in the darkness would die in the light in the name of Jesus. And so we ask ourselves these questions. What are the things that I'm valuing? What are the things that I'm prioritizing? And the best way we can find those things is to pay attention to some real practical realities in our lives. 
Pastor Jim Hayford said this. I've never forgotten it. He goes, if you want to know what you're prioritizing that represents what you value, check your calendar and your bank accounts. Check how you're spending your time and how you're spending your money. And whether you like it or not, whatever is reflected in those two spaces will be a strong indication of what you value. And so we give ourselves grace because sometimes we're like, yeah, I'm off again. I've drifted again. I need to reprioritize and realign uh, with the way of my Savior. The best way home to the places where God has called us to and the things that he's called us to do is to have written down in moments of sobriety the things we know that we truly value. That's how I get back. In those spaces of sobriety, when I'm hearing clearly from Jesus, I mark the road. I mark the path. So when I wander off the path, what I'm looking for on the way back is the clear path forward. Does that make sense? Right? So we, we articulate our priorities and our values because we are prone to wandering away from them. And so we have to just continue to return to them. That's why we spend time looking at these things. And as the South Everett Foursquare family, above all, we value the lordship of Jesus. If there's any higher priority than we have gone astray, it is the lordship of Jesus, his name proclaimed, or it is nothing. That's the standard bearer. If we're lost, that's our north star. His name is Jesus. There's nothing else. And flowing forth from Jesus as South Everett Foursquare in this season, we aim to value and prioritize that which he has valued and prioritized. And so we've looked at sacred relationships that Jesus in humility laid his life down to be in relationship with us. So we want to do everything in our relationships when conflict arises to humble ourselves and to hear one another out that we might walk again in unity with him. We've talked about diverse unity. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was about unity in the church. We talked about how unity is not uniformity. It's learning how to walk together with our diverse perspectives and experiences, proclaiming the life of Jesus together. We talked about signs and wonders, that Jesus prioritizes healings. And the miraculous power that was available to him and his disciples are still available to us. We talked about our neighborhood and our city. We see that Jesus valued the places where he set his foot. And the thing is, we can't fully understand what it is that we are called to until we understand who it is that we are. This is why identity and purpose is so important. We have a thing that God has called us to, but it derives from our identity and who he's created us to be. But we can't know who we are before we know who he is because we were created in his image. So we can't do what we're supposed to do until we know who we are. We can't know who we are until we know who he is. And we have to know that Jesus came to us as one representing the fullness of the Father to bring us remarkable depth and clarity concerning the realities of who he was. That's why Jesus came. He came, he said, you're not, you're not quite getting it. You're just, you're struggling with it. So let me not, I'm not going to tell you anymore through my prophets. I'm going to show you through my son. I'm going to show up with you and show you what it looks like. Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus came as the exact representation of the father. My daughter was asking me, how do we know that Jesus is truly God? It's a great question to have with my 17 year old daughter. Her faith is becoming her own and she's asking good questions. I said, well, the the word says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. 
Colossians 1.19 says that Jesus is the one in whom God was pleased to have his fullness dwell. All of the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus and God was pleased about it. So he's the exact representation. He embodies the fullness of God, the fullness of man, so that we might know how to follow him in the flesh that we've put on. Not as perfectly as he did, but that he would show us and empathize with us. One verse I spent a lot of time reflecting on when we were in Israel was from 1 John and reflects the words of John. These are John's words, a testimony about Jesus. He says, We saw him with our very own eyes. We gazed upon him and we heard him speak. Our hands actually touched him, the one who was from the beginning. The living expression of God, the life giver, was made of visible, and we have seen him. We testify to this truth. The eternal life giver lived face to face with the Father and has now dawned upon us. So we proclaim to you what we have seen and what we've heard about this life giver so that we may share and enjoy this life together. For truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus, the Anointed One. The disciples were courageous in their belief, for they had been with Jesus. But their belief in Jesus was courageous because they saw him. In Matthew 13, we find Jesus in Capernaum. But in Capernaum, he was on a fishing boat off the shore, surrounded by crowds, and he was recounting parables in Matthew 13 about seeds and weeds in fishing nets. Jesus is awakening the imagination of those who would listen to him, communicating the realities of the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus, even coming to us, was like, I'm here in person, I'm the fullness of God, and I'm doing everything to communicate to you and help you understand the realities of heaven which will come. We live in this kingdom between the the here and the not yet, that Jesus is here, his presence is with us, and yet there is something better to come. Those realities of heaven that can be awakened in our imagination by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was sharing those things. And from Capernaum, he headed west towards Nazareth, where he grew up, wandering through the hill countries of Galilee. This is something I didn't know. Maybe you knew. I didn't know this. I didn't know that the Sea of Galilee was 700 feet below sea level. And that all surrounding it, the elevation above sea level is three to 400 feet. So by the time you get to see the Sea of Galilee, you're looking down at it from 1,000 feet. Which was encouraged because Jesus was a hiker. Come on, that's funny. That's funny. Come on. Jesus was a hiker. But every time he le- I did not realize this. Every time he left the region of Galilee, he had a 1,000-foot hike out of the rolling plains of that region coming back and forth, traveling the way that Jesus did was, was no small effort. And just to get to, from Capernaum west to Nazareth, where he grew up, was a 43-mile hike. Up a 1,000 feet of elevation and then down a little bit again. It would have taken a few days for him to make that journey on foot. But in Matthew 13, 54, Jesus says, it says that Jesus arrived in Nazareth and he taught in the synagogues. Luke's gospel records that while Jesus was there teaching, he read from the scrolls of the prophet Isaiah, defining his mission and his purpose. Read along with me here. This is from Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, the words of Jesus. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the people were amazed by his teaching. The people were amazed by that teaching that he gave. And yet they were still a little bit uncertain about his identity. Figuring out identity and purpose is hard work, but Jesus modeled it by showing the people and telling the people what it was that he came to do. I'm here for freedom. He stood up and said that he was confident in his identity, and then he stepped out into his purpose. Confident in his identity as God's son. Confident in the purpose that God had given him to complete, that the Father had given to him. And even hearing him say these things, the crowd still just wondered, isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't that, isn't that Mary's kid? Like, what does he know? We've been around him forever. They were unclear, uncertain about his identity, so we know for sure they couldn't have been certain about theirs. Those who were listening to him in the synagogue had missed the point. But Jesus went on to say that no prophet would be accepted in his own town. David C. Allison is a New Testament historian from the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and he noted that the people's inability to understand Jesus led not to indifference, but to hostility. Luke tells us that those gathered around wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff, proclaiming his identity, and then saying, y'all are here for the wrong reasons. You don't want to believe in me. You just want me to do some magic tricks, essentially. The healing comes, but the healer is the one we're to seek. And that created a hostile environment. Something I have come to understand about further exploration of my identity in Christ and his purpose for my life is it seems to create a certain level of hostility in my circumstances. And there is opposition that comes as we step into what God has called us to do. Got questions about that, asked Jesus. He ended up on a cross. His disciples ended up losing their lives for the sake of the mission. They understood their identity, and once they did, the The purpose was clear and the consequences didn't matter because King Jesus was in their purview. They fixed their eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of their faith, and they gave their lives. And we're standing here talking about it a couple thousand years later. As I was thinking through this this week and reflecting on these passages, our understanding of Jesus' identity and purpose requires a willingness to suspend our assumptions when what he is doing doesn't make sense to us. Think about something going on in your life that Jesus might be orchestrating that does not seem to make sense to you right now. That may be viewed as a terrible mistake. Oh, if I just not acted in faith and stepped out in obedience to do this specific thing, then it might be comfortable. Which is the greatest idol in North America. The path he calls us to goes through an oil press. And the things he calls us to aren't always comfortable, but comfort isn't the end game. Right? What right now doesn't make sense about what God is doing in your life? And what is our response to that? Because for a group in the town he was born in, they wanted to throw him off a cliff because it was so uncomfortable. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like throwing my relationship with Jesus off a cliff when it gets really difficult. I don't know about you. It would just be easier if it could be easier. But it's so easy to fill the gaps in information and our understanding of how things should be. And we fill it with 
our own understanding where we could be filling it with revelation from the Lord. Because Jesus wasn't just another prophet or another rabbi or just another king. You see, even Israel had an understanding of what a king was supposed to do. And Jesus did not check any of those boxes. Because he died. But then he rose again. Plenty of other kings died. We went and visited one of the Decapolis cities, Bet-Shean, right at the base of the mountain where King Saul killed himself and was hung on a pole. Kings die. But only this king came back. See, Jesus has something different than what we can expect. He certainly wasn't just the carpenter's son. He was and is the son of our Father in heaven. I spent some time thinking about this the last couple of days. In our familiarity with Jesus as we understand him, which is in my life clearly often different than how Jesus would desire to be understood. But as I understand him, what might I be missing that he would want to reveal to me? When there's a question and I just fill the gap in information with my own understanding, what might the Lord invite me to say? Why don't you take your own understanding out of that gap and ask for revelation? I'll show you what's actually happening. This is the work that he was doing with his disciples. What would he want to reveal to us? Just stop and pause and ask the Lord. God, as I follow you as a disciple, there's questions that I don't have answers to. And God, I repent in this place of filling those gaps in information hastily with my own understanding. Lord, your word says not to lean on my own understanding. But in all my ways acknowledge you and you will make my path straight. Lord, show us right now by the power of your spirit as we sit together in this room on a Sunday morning in March. In our most sincere following, where is their gaps? Where are their questions? Where is their hand-wringing going on? And what might you show us as we quiet ourselves and ask for revelation from heaven by the power of your spirit? What would you show us that would straighten our path? As we press step back from our own understanding, lean more confidently into yours, Lord. What would you show us? The second question comes is who we understand Jesus to be informed more by our own perspective or by his revelation. What moves us from one camp to the other? From our own understanding to his divine revelation. What do we have to do to reposition ourselves from a camp that's prioritizing our own understanding to the camp that's prioritizing his revelation? What do we have to do? Uh, our, our travel situation to Israel was horrific because of a blown uh, transformer outside the international gate of JFK Airport in New York City. It turned a, a nice, easy trip uh, into, into a 40-hour amazing race. Uh, it was quite remarkable, but when we did arrive exactly 40 hours after leaving Seattle at our hotel in Tel Aviv, we got our room keys and our guide said, I'm sorry for this. Uh, after traveling for 40 hours, you just need to know that our tour starts in two and a half hours. <laughs> so go ahead and get a shower and change your clothes and get back down here for breakfast because we got 10 hours of touring ahead of us. And so by the time, from the time I woke up at 2.30 in the morning on a Saturday in Seattle to the time I laid my head on a pillow again in a bed, I was in Galilee 53 hours later. So it had been up for 49 out of 53 hours, but we were there. 
And then because of time change, I thought I'd sleep through the night, but I slept for like four and a half hours and woke up at 3 a.m. because that was like 1 p.m. here. So I'm in Galilee and it's dark and I'm awake in the middle of the night. And the Lord brought to mind one of my favorite verses from the Gospel of Mark 1.35. It says, Jesus got up early before sunrise and went out to a lonely place, a solid place of solitude, and he prayed. Got up before the light came up and he went out and he prayed. And I thought, you know what, I, I get to do that this morning because I'm, I'm where that is. Like, we have arrived where that is. And so at 3 in the morning, I was up sitting out on our patio. We had a patio overlooking the sea, which we could not see yet, which we hadn't seen yet. And I just got up and spent a couple hours with the Lord, helping realign my perspective, my own understanding, to his revelation. And as close as I could, sitting with Jesus where he sat, I made a recording of, you know, I don't know about how long birds last in a region, but if these same birds, the same species of birds are there now that were there 2,000 years ago, I sat before the sun come up and just listened to the birds and thought, wow, I feel really close with you right now, Jesus. Getting to sit and experience this with you, and then that, that's the sunrise from my patio that morning over the Sea of Galilee. And just remembering that Jesus desires for us to sit with him, experiencing undivided time alone with him so that we can have our perspective realigned. Like he realigned the perspectives of those in the city of Nazareth who wanted to throw him off a cliff for talking about identity and purpose. Because it's threatening, because it will not lead to comfort. One thing Jay and I were talking about recently was just that when we talk about the spirit in the flesh, that... To deny the, the spirit is to, to live in, in the flesh, but to deny the flesh is to live in the power of the spirit. And that's hard, and some days we do better than others. But if there's a reason why there's an offense, if there's a reason we want to throw Jesus off a cliff about some things that he's called us to, it really has to do with our flesh fighting back against what the Lord would want to do in us through the spirit. And Jesus sets an example for us. So this overarching narrative that begins with Jesus' hostile interactions with these people in Nazareth concludes in Matthew 16 with Jesus' conversation with his disciples concerning his identity. So there's this, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this sub-story going on, and it begins in 13 and ends in 16. But I want to read this passage of Scripture. There's a photo up here that shows the region... This is from what's called Mount Arbel, and then everything down here below... Uh, is the city of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene came from, and then Capernaum is up here. The Mount of Beatitudes is up here. And this is where Jesus spent much of his life in his ministry. But every once in a while, he'd go on a men's retreat with his disciples, and they would head north towards Mount Hermon. Today, it's the place where Lebanon, Syria, and Israel all come together. It's where the city of Dan is, where some of the kings held the northern tribes. But it's also where Caesarea Philippi is. One thing that I am continuing to learn as a growing disciple of Jesus is that it's taking a lifetime to understand how God's word works. And one thing that I haven't paid very much attention to because it didn't seem relevant to me at the time was the names and places associated with the accounts of Jesus' ministry in Israel. Because what does it matter? Like, where's Galilee compared to Capernaum and where is... Dan, compared to Caesarea Philippi, and why do these places matter? Something I'm continuing to learn as a growing disciple of Jesus, our guide was teaching us that when the scriptures mention a place, there's a reason they mention the place. Because the place and what's happening in the place makes 
uh, the story come to life and it brings greater detail to light and application. So Caesarea Philippi is what we'll talk about today, and that is north, north, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, up in the Golan Heights. Like I said, Jesus would get away from the Galilean region for more intentional time with his disciples. And he went to the region around Caesarea Philippi. So in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, this is Peter's confession of the Messiah. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Interesting, that's an identity question right off the bat. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Verse 15, but who do you say that I am? How about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. That's an identity statement. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This region around the city of Caesarea Philippi is largest. It was located near one of the largest springs that feeds the Jordan River. And Caesarea Philippi was also known as Panius, the town of Panius, because of its worship of the god Pan, was founded by Philip the Tetrarch, who was the son of King Herod. And going long back before these kings and the engagement of the Romans, the Canaanites had set up in the city the worship of false gods. And then the Greeks and the Romans came and they did like the ones before and just piled on as many gods as they could possibly identify. We, well, we took some time and, and, and painstakingly did a lot of recording along the way. We'll be putting videos together to show you different things as seasons go on because they're from... 38 sites in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we'll bring light to them as they apply. But this is a video, about a six-minute video of our visit to Caesarea Philippi with Dr. Randy. So check this out. Thanks again for tuning in today. You can check out this video of our trip to Caesarea Philippi by clicking on the link in the show notes. So that is a little glimpse of Caesarea Philippi and the place matters. What is interesting to me, learning from Dr. Randy last year when we traveled in Turkey in the seven churches of Revelation and the letters that were written to each of those churches, how much the context and the place to whom Jesus was speaking mattered. Because he cares about what's going on in our lives. And how fitting of Jesus to take his disciples to a place where identity and lordship was so in question. To have them answer the question, who do you say that I am? In the face of all of this lower G God stuff happening in this region, who do you say that I am? And throughout history, and no different in the history that we are facing today, we are presented with opportunities to worship everything and everyone besides Jesus. And so Chris asked the question, is Jesus the Lord of my life? And how much lordship does he have in my life? And it elevates the importance of sitting quietly with Jesus so that he can realign 
our understanding to look more like the revelation he desires to provide for us. And so wrapping up our core values series, the story of us, again, we've talked about diverse unity, signs and wonders, sacred relationships, neighborhood and city. And then we talk about this very important aspect, courageous belief. And we have this to put up there for you. At South Ever Four School, we are bold in our belief that the gospel transforms lives, recognizing that apart from Christ, we can do nothing and acting on his clear call to rise up to raise up disciples, a generation of gospel fluent city influencers. We're bold in our proclamation of the gospel and courageous in our efforts to seek the shalom and flourishing of the city. It's getting harder and harder and harder to make a stand for Jesus and still be respected by our neighbors. Not impossible, just more difficult. What we're facing today as followers of Jesus in the Puget Sound region in 2023 still does not yet hold a candle to the intensity of persecution faced by the early church and other believers, believers in Jesus across the world. We're not even close yet. But when we read Peter's epistles, those start to ring more true in what I identify with in the last five to ten years than ever before in my life. Because to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus in the United States of America, had nothing to do with facing persecution. It was just the way of the land. And that's changing. And so we either change with it and stay with the crowd, or we depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to take a stand on things, which includes loving all people. I will say this, this is a, a thorn that gets in my cross sometimes, is that people in the name of Jesus, act without love and then excuse it for the persecution that they thought was coming anyways. Just because Jesus says we will be persecuted for our faith does not give us a license to be a jerk to other people. It does not. And we can't then say, well, they hated me. We have to ask six questions. Did they hate me for the right reasons? Or was I just a jerk? Because everything about the fruit of the Spirit puts love at the core which means we love everyone with the intensity with which Jesus loved everybody. Without coming off a proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God, and upon the rock of Jesus, his church will be built, and he will build his church. So we love without relent, and we stand on truth with the same kind of intensity. And that creates a difficult place to stand. Because it would be easier to just not make waves, not say something that might offend somebody. But if we preach the gospel, the gospel is love. And so we cannot be unloving and preach the gospel at the same time. God will make a way for that. But that's part of our understanding that we don't see it until we get there. Where my truth is my truth. And I just stand on my truth and speak my truth. That sounds good. The only thing that I can speak is an opinion if it's not based on what Jesus has said. And having opinions is fine, but we should claim them for what they are. I, my perspective looks like this. But when we get into spaces where we are using words like, well, I'm going to speak my truth, it infers that there's more than one truth. It's slippery. It's like Satan in the garden asking half-truth questions to Adam and Eve to see if he can get them off their foundation. There's one truth. His name is Jesus. It takes courage to say that in the world that we live in.
it's possible to stand for truth and still love people and have different opinions and still love people without abandon. But it's difficult. Courageous belief means we stand on the gospel in a culture that doesn't value the gospel. But we value love, and if they can't see that, then who needs to go back for correction? It's me. If anyone in this neighborhood can rightly accuse me of being unloving because I actually didn't love somebody, then that's on me to go back and and, and make amends. But it's also on me to make sure that I'm not compromising the hope of the gospel in my communication about how I love somebody. Does that make sense? It's difficult. We need the revelation of Jesus to walk in these spaces. And it's not different. I'm relieved that they face this kind of opposition because I'm like, oh, it means that believers in Jesus have already done this. And there's a faithful path forward about how it can happen. But choosing not to love is not a part of the equation. And that's why Peter, who made this proclamation, had Jesus riding him over and over and over because he just couldn't figure out how to love people that were different than him. Jesus ascended into heaven, sent the Spirit. Peter did some more stuff that was pretty awesome. And then Paul had to come and remind him. Peter was a work in progress. And he got called out. He didn't get it all right all the time. But he was working on it. Just like Jesus works on us. Amen? Amen. Courageous belief is a, is a difficult thing. Jesus' church is built on courageous confessions in the face of invitations to worship and confess lower G gods. We will have that opportunity every day to worship something less than Jesus. And his church is built on our resolve to do more than that, to only proclaim the name of Jesus. Understanding the context, Caesarea Philippi, in the face of false gods, at the gate of hell. And we think about Peter's confession in front of Jesus about his identity. What comes to mind? With that context in mind, and then maybe beyond that, just groups of three or four for a few minutes. What's the hardest thing for us today in the culture we live in about being courageous in our belief? So it's just a chance to share, to encourage each other, um, to reflect on this, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up and go again next week. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, bring revelation, give us courage to stand on truth and love like crazy. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right.